This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Three, two, one, and welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen, on this early morning conversation with my friend and brother, Les. How you doing, man? Hey, brother. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. You know, we uh, you, you used a term that I think fits our relationship. You called us spirit brothers. Oh, definitely. And I think that fits. Man. I right, think I right. think that fits you and I have a lot in common. Oh man, isn't that, it's amazing how you know you're halfway across the world and <laughs> you know, but our umbilical cord is maybe two or three feet right between us. Right. So you know, I knew that from the moment we started talking. Yeah. I felt the connection right away. You know. So yeah, I mean, I'm very comfortable talking to you about anything. So let's. Let's just get Anything? into a, let's just right, get into a right. conversation. Let's let's see if we right. can have a conversation that kind of cements our first intuition that we have right. this 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 nat- natural uh, brotherly uh, combination because we have so many things in common. You and I. We'll, yes. we'll get into that. Maybe this will come out uh, in the conversation. Um, but one thing that that I'm real interested in with you is your um, your your educational background. You, if if I, if I understand correctly, you got your degree or you did the bulk or or, or quite a bit of your college education later on in years. You weren't the typical 18 year old who went off straight to college. Can you, can you talk about that? Um, Initially, uh, I left the military at the age of 20. Okay. And I started the following fall semester at Kansas State University. which, Which branch of the military? I was in the army. In the army, the army, yeah. And once I ETS'd or got out the army, I uh, I began the following fall at Kent State University to have any discipline or real structure in my life or any examples to follow or even a support network. So I ended up uh, basically bombing out with a 1.97 GPA in 1990, and at, from there I went to the I joined the police department here in Akron, Ohio where I worked for 15 years and I got hurt on duty. And after I left the department, I said to myself, you know what? That 1.97 GPA I left Kent state with, you may as well stamp that on my forehead for the 15 years while I was a police officer, because it always bothered me. And I always told myself if I had a chance to go back and make things right, I'm going to do it. So, so, you looked at, left, so you looked at that GPA as a failed accomplishment, something that oh, you wanted definitely. to better. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. I, uh, it was horrible. It was horrible. And, um, so okay. once I, once I started back in seven, I had a new frame of mind. I had a different frame of mind. And, um, I just say, you know, now is my time. It's my time to go back, correct the wrong and finish my degree. Initially I wanted to finish with a bachelor's degree, but, um, I had a talk with my aunt and I said, you know what, in the long term, I would like to get a doctorate degree and my self-esteem based on that 1.97, it wasn't quite where it should have been at because I had fears, but I, I, I just sat down at, with my aunt and she basically told me, you have doctors and lawyers in your family. If they did it, you can do it. Okay. Her name is, her name is Ina Browner. And because of that, that was like a catalyst and I see. what happened was, I mean, it just really fortified my enthusiasm 
what I and what I did was I started from the basics. I got a G, GED study guide because I've been out of school for twenty years. Yeah, GED you know study. that that whole thing about ha- have being out of out of schooling for so long. Right. Uh, you that w- was that a struggle that you had to go through because I can I can put myself in the same situation. See, here we go already. Uh, we we uh, I'm, feel, <laughs> okay. I'm feeling that we have so much in common. Right, because right, I right. went away to college uh, on a football scholarship, uh, first in my family to go to wow. a to a to a university. So there's a lot of pride there. Wow. So oh, you can imagine the disappointment in myself when I quit. I quit. I gave up that scholarship oh, wow. and didn't finish. But then mm. any thoughts of going back uh, seem so, to this day, seem so distant to me because I've been out of that university environment so lo- for so long. So after so many years away from a university education, was it a challenge for you to get back into it? Well, you know what? You have to put all your, uh, stop all your pride <laughs> and your ego and leave it outside the front door. And you have to really commit to yourself you know what? I'm going to start from the beginning. So I got a GED study guide and I basically studied it from front to back. Okay. Front to back. I learned math all over again. I learned English all over again. So you did this Sciences. on your own. This was not in the on classroom. You did this. Okay. Yeah. Now how, how long so did you, how long did you do this I self study? I barricaded myself in my house for about two months. <laughs> two months. <laughs> yes. And I followed everything. And if I didn't know something, I would go to the library and get a book. And basically, just because the internet wasn't really uh, uh, what it is today, so no. you couldn't rely on you couldn't rely on videos and things like that. This was back in so the library I, days. No internet, yes. no Google library. Exactly. So I got a. Um, I, I, I had probably a, a ten or eleven books that I would I would reference if I had issues with anything. Okay. I studied them, and um, I became proficient. You know, a lot of it was memory. Oh, okay. You know, but sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're younger, you say, I can't make sense of this. But after you go through different things in life and you learn about progression, uh, systems, um, and you expand your worldview, things tend to make more sense. Amen to okay? that. Absolutely. And then you say, Absolutely. And you say to yourself, I could have got this before, man. Yeah. If I had just blocked out all the external stimuli, yes. all the partying and distractions and things like that. I could have done it before. Yeah. But I'm a firm believer in divine time that when you, when you do something and you accomplish this on your time, not the next person's. So I became very proficient at uh, the basics and, and a lot of things in college are just recycled basic theories and concepts and whatnot. And you had to apply them to different circumstances. So I, um, us to get into the program, and I scored in the high 90s okay. on that test, a proficiency yeah. test. I didn't pursue the nursing degree because the school was not accredited. They got their accreditation about a year after I left. Okay, so nursing um, was originally what you wanted to focus on. Yeah, okay. it was what I really wanted to Okay. Uh, focus on. I was going to go back to Kent State for graduate school for nursing, but it didn't work out that way. So once, once I left that program, the nursing school, I went back to Kent State. Okay, so I got a chance to, you know, get that GPA together. And when I got back, when I went back to Kent State, I had about 32 credit hours I had to finish, which is roughly a semester or a semester in the summer, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. So in one year, I scored straight A's 
in all of my courses, one B, one B. But what happened was I made the president's list. Yes. I made uh, the dean's list. And um, at the end of that year, I just had, a, had one credit hour to finish. Yeah. So I had 32 credit hours initially, one credit hour to finish. And I turned that 1.9 GPA to a 3.08. That's amazing. And how old, how old right. were you when you were going through that year? Oh, this was in uh, 2000. I think I was uh, 43. 43, okay. When I went back. Wow. I'm I'm 55 now. Okay. Yeah, I may not look like it, but. Hey, man, you know, this, this, I don't know, there's another thing we have in common. We both look like we're about 21, 22. (laughs) There you go. And we both have the heads, man. There you go. Hey, I got a compliment on my head. I had a a guest on Miss England Brooks. Uh, okay. w- wonderful black lady who lives here in Norway, uh-huh. black American, originally from Compton, but she lives here in Norway. Oh, really? I wow. did it. I did an episode with her and she said, I have the most beautifully shaped head. I've never had that compliment oh, okay. before. <laughs> so shout out to okay. Miss England who, uh, who, who is hey. in love with the shape of my head. So there you go, brother. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's a compliment. I can't help it. Right. Uh, and and right. Miss England can't help it. She's just telling the truth. So there's nothing there for my go, wife. My, my wife can't get jealous of the truth now. No, so. no, not at all. I'm sure she appreciates it. You appreciate it. So, <laughs> I mean, hey, it is what it is. It is what it is. Okay. So you're, you're 40, 43, 42, 43 years old, back to college. You turn that 1.9 uh, GPA into a three, what'd you say? A three point Eight, zero point, eight. Yeah, and that's that, that's amazing. Yeah. How how hard was that? Hard. How hard? Well, okay. You put in the time. You put in the work. But was it was it? Uh, did it go easy? Did it go smooth? Or was there well, a struggle you know involved? I look at it like this: you start on on top. Everybody starts out with a four point What right. you do in between uh, the beginning and end of that school year determines whether you can maintain it. So. I looked at it like, hey, I'm, I got a 4.0, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to maintain that. So I studied, man. I mean, I, 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 eat, I ate, slept, and breathed academics. That's a great way of looking at it. You start out with the 4.0, and you do what, right. you can, what, you do what it have to, has to be done to maintain that. That's a good right. way of looking at it. Exactly. I'm always a, a You start know, off winning. Glass, you, you start a, off winning exactly. already. Yeah. I'm a glass half full kind of person instead of a glass half empty. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that complete that glass to make it full instead of being half full. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Were, were, were there any challenges in melding to get molding together your academic life with your work life at that time? Well, at that time I had left the police department on a disability. I got hurt. Okay, so, so this was I, after. They, okay, gotcha. Yes, you were done. Yes, okay, this was after. And how many years? They, how many years were you an officer? I was fifteen years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any frustrations there with having to give up that line of work? I hated it. Really? Yeah. It, yeah, I never liked it. You know, we would have alarm calls in Fairlawn Heights. You know where Fairlawn yeah. Heights is? Yeah. Big, beautiful houses, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars houses, and not that materialism means everything, but I always admired accomplishments right you know what does it take for you to get from point a to point b right not that you know money means everything it's just that what sacrifices did you have to make like i asked you about norway we spoke about that yes and i always admired your bravery because to me it takes a lot of bravery to uproot leave your country your safe zone 
to go to another country where you don't know anything. Well, I tell so you, I, that that was right. uh, br- bravery is a word that really fits in that situation right, because right. it was an extremely uncertain period uh, in right. my life, and and it was a period where I really leaned on my wife. I mean, Snoopy, right, right there will tell you how much trust I put in Snoopy, my wife. I call her Snoopy. Right. Uh, That's okay. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, that, that right there shows you how much trust I put into her because I literally dropped everything. We were, we were married, uh, for about 18 months at that time. We had been together for a little over two years at that time. Right. Um, and I just put all my trust in her, dropped everything and came here. So it's, it's, uh, you know, talking about what it took to get where I am now, that first step actually moving here was the most difficult part of it. That is incredible. I'm still, I'm in awe of your journey to get there. You know, I, I, I'm open to doing that. Like we discussed before, but I want to go where I don't, I don't pay a lot of money for taxes and things like that. You know, (laughs) with this, with the current political environment, environment and racial environment in America, I'm tired, man. I, I believe like, it. I'm know. not even there and yeah. I'm tired. You know, right. Th- th- right. just just to walk down this path for a second, you know, uh, thinking about taxes, um, you know, uh, people talk about how the Scandinavian countries, Norway in particular, are, are, are places where citizens have to pay high taxes. Yeah, we pay high taxes. But mm. I can tell you this very quickly after coming here and starting wor- working that feeling of being overtaxed left and you, uh, st- okay. you, 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 you don't even feel there's no adjustment to make. It just, it, it right. is what it is. And then reciprocally, we see, you know, we feel our taxes being spent. We know right. where it's going. There's very little right. corruption when it comes to budgeting and on a national level, okay. we know okay. where our money is going and we're getting our value back. Right. How long you been there now? Man, I've been here since uh, the 5th of June, 2002. Wow. Coming up on 19 years this, this, <laughs> oh this coming God. June in 2021. Man. So, so, so I don't feel that, that we're taxed uh, more than we right, should right, be. We're right, taxed a lot, right. but we also get a lot back. You know, free health care. Right. Uh, right. I was able to, to, to keep my job and take a year of leave when our daughter was born, I stayed at home really? with our daughter for a year and still got paid, still had my job. Wow. wow. I mean, I'll pay a little extra that's taxes. Incredible. Yeah, I'll pay a little extra taxes Definitely. to be able to do that. Wow. So, and that's nothing unusual. That's normal. That's normal yeah. to get to well, get. See, in, in some of my business classes, we studied work life environments in different country, and Norway was at the top of the list having an incredible work-life balance. There is yeah. a lot of truth in that. Um, it, it, it's, it's, very, it's very rare to come across someone here in Norway who is complaining about their job. People are very right. satisfied with their job. They're satisfied with their pay. Uh, they're satisfied with the amount of time off they get. You know, yeah. five yeah. weeks of vacation, five weeks mm. of vacation every year. Hello. <laughs> you know, uh, all, all of this, uh, this, um, you know, supported time off for sickness or, or, right. or, uh, the birth, the birth of a child, you know, things like it's, it's just, it's incredible. What about childcare? You know, things like that, like daycare, childcare. I, I looked at it. Here you go. Now, 
Nor- Norway is taxed higher, uh, much higher than your tax in the United States. But childcare is, uh, I believe, 30% cheaper here in Norway than it is in the States. Yeah, I heard that. I read about that. <laughs> so, you know, yep. I- again, I don't have a problem paying these high taxes because we get it back. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that offline. I, I, now you got you got me thinking again, man. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to Norway. I know, right? right? But let me let me go back to to your uh, let me go back to your to your story, to your your timeline here. Okay, now you you had been a police officer for fifteen years, Akron PD, and then you go back to school. You've pulled your grades up three point eight. Uh, you finished you finished that last credit hour. And what do you have your degree in then at that point? My bachelor's degree is in general studies. Okay. And then what do you do? You get that degree and what do you start doing? Well, the funny thing is when I was at graduation, I was talking to another guy who was sitting next to me, uh, a young kid, man. And he was telling me that, oh, I got to start law school in three weeks. And I, you know, I, I was laughing. I was like, oh, man, you know, you don't get a break, blah, 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 blah. You know, it was so funny. But then when I got out, I wanted to go into an MBA program, and when I applied, I got accepted, um, and classes started in a month. I thought I would, I would at least have, you know, three or four months off. You right. Know? I graduated in July, and classes started in August. So I'm thinking, man, I'm on, oh, God. <laughs> you don't even, you <laughs> you even get a chance to breathe, man. Right, right. <laughs> but see, you know, I'm never one to turn down an opportunity. So they said, look, you can either start in September or start in December. I said, no, I'm not going to do that because they were on quarters. Okay. So I had to start I had to start in August, late August, I mean. So I started in August, and I finished my uh, master's of business. In 2013, I got an MBA in healthcare information, which is almost like a dual major because you get the business, and then you get the healthcare information. Uh, uh, focus. So it was almost like a dual major. Healthcare and information I, 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 or healthcare administration? Information. Information. Okay. Yes. Information. In practical What's, terms, what is that degree? What, what, what do you, what can you use that degree to do? What oh, it's, of- it's just like administration. Okay. It, it's leadership uh, from a business perspective, uh, dealing with, uh, um, uh, coded language, that kind of information systems, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But it's just it's it's just like administration. It's a leadership okay. position. Okay. Yeah. And this was at Kent so, State too, right? All, all of this no, was no. At- uh, no, that was at uh, um, Tiffin, Tiffin University. Tiffin, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm just writing some notes here so I make sure I get That's your, okay. I want to make sure I get your yeah. biography right when I post That's this. Fine. That's <laughs> when fine. I post this That's episode. Fine. Okay, so master's in uh, healthcare information. Uh, And at that point, how old are you? Uh, Probably 45 or 44. So at the age of 45, 44, 45, you're in a position that most people are around maybe 24, 25. As as you get older, your colleagues in class, they get older too because a lot of people are returning because they've worked in careers and they want promotions and things like that. Okay. I was, n- I was never the oldest person in class. Ah, okay. That's an eye-opener. Okay. Right. I was, I was, you know, with people who were my age and some were a couple of years younger or whatnot, but 
the demographic was roughly similar to my age, maybe a few years difference. Interesting. Right. I never would. I never would have thought. I never would have thought. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm looking at it from a Norwegian perspective because here people have a tendency to, you know, they finish high school, they go right into college, they get that, okay. they get that bachelor's, and then they go right into the master's so that they're right. done. They're done with all of that right. by the time they're 24, 25. That's a Norwegian and, thing, though. And, and another thing that separated uh, me from younger people is that this was a platform where this, I went to school. It, this online was a what? Online. Online, okay. yes. So the population, the working population that would go to school and, and fit their classes within their work schedule. So that was another thing that kind of raised the age, age, uh, uh, age and level up. You know, because you had a returning demographic that worked full time with families and so forth. Right. You know, I th I think the probably the biggest thing, the biggest deterrent to me uh, through these years, going back and getting an education and furthering my education, is the idea of sitting in a classroom listening to lectures and whatnot. That just doesn't appeal to me. But on the other side, doing things online with a quality online education. Right. You know, with the proper support and, and, and proper follow-up right. and whatnot. That online oh, they, thing yeah, is definitely. actually very appealing to me. That, right. that, I, mean, that I could do, yeah. Most, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's exciting because you're, you're, your motivation comes from within. You're older, you're experienced, and you're determined. So motivation was never a problem for me. So you had you that know, focus I, all along. Oh yeah! Oh, relentless. <laughs> you never relentless thought. Focus. You, you never got worn out. You never thought about quitting. No. Focus the entire way. See, that's right, impressive. Because I looked at it as, as uh, long-term achievements, short-term achievements, and every uh, uh, quarter or semester, those grades would motivate me to keep going because I scored very well. When I I, I got a four through all of my graduate years. Masters, including the doctorate, and focus, and, I, and and it was just, you know, I, I told myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stick my face in these books. Not going to let up until I'm done. And I, I resolved myself to either they're going to kill me first before I leave this program, or I'm not until I graduate. That's impressive. I, I get motivated. I get, I get chills listening to that. I, I get, no, I get, I right. get, I get so motivated. You can do it. Oh, there, I, there, there, there were guys, people in Europe, people in Hawaii, people in Africa that were, you know, part of these online learning platforms, you know? What, what kind of a student were you in high school? Did you have this same focus and drive? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because of my home environment, um, stress, confusion, uh, abuse, I couldn't focus. I was always aloof and I always had other things in my mind. You know, I would, I would, in class, I would drift off and, you know, think about what's going to happen when I got home. Man, that sounds just like me. I tell you, I, uh, but, but here's the interesting thing. I've spoken to a lot of, again, the wonders of social media. There's a lot of ugliness out there, but there's a lot of beauty. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that, that beauty has manifested itself when when I have gotten back in touch with old friends from high school and we talk about our experiences in high school and all of them, just about all of them are sharing this thing that they viewed me as this happy-go-lucky, good-natured kid. But when I think mm. back to my high school times, all I can think of is depression, 
right. uh, uh, confusion, zero motivation. The, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating how some of my former classmates have a completely different image of me, you know, uh, a total right. contrast to what I felt about myself. Right, right. You know, I thought that, at, you know, my family was the only screwed up family. I didn't think. Well, yeah, you I know, you never anything. think because that's not something you talk about as a, as a teenager. Right. You don't talk about those right. things with your friends. So you internalize exactly. all of that and you think, yeah, I'm alone. It's just me. Nobody right. else is going right. through this. It's just me. Exactly. Exactly. But what I did was, um, okay. I, I okay. My, my academic journey began, uh, in East Akron. We lived in the projects and, um, there was a lot of, drugs and you know uh-huh. ghetto things going on that weren't very positive and weren't very conducive to bettering yourself and what happened was when i was in the 10th grade we moved to north Canton. i'm sorry you moved I to where to north, Canton, north Canton north Canton, ohio yes and i i went to glen oak ohio glen oak high school i'm sorry glen oak high school and it was basically the first time i encountered white people uh-huh Yes. You know, and it was like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, if yeah. you've ever seen that movie. So Absolutely. you had the jocks, <laughs> you had the burnt stoners, you know, you had... The burnouts, as we called them. Yeah, burnouts, <laughs> right, 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 burnouts. So I went to West Junior High School in West Akron, and I'm sure you probably know what that was like, you know. Absolutely. It was like Cooley High, basically. See, because we moved, we moved away from Goodyear Heights in East Akron. Okay. We moved away right. from there to Norton, Ohio, uh, when oh. I was, when I was in third grade. So I'm pretty much, okay. gr- I've pretty much grown up in okay. that r- r- rural slash suburb. I think at that time, right. Norton was just a village. It was the village of Norton. It wasn't even a city. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> so, so that okay. rural, um, uh, yeah, fast times at Richmond High, been in a rural exactly. setting. So even more yeah. white, if you will, even more, right. uh, of that cookie cutter society, yeah, in rural yeah. Ohio type of thing. Yeah, yeah. that was so, when I was in third yeah. grade. Right. So yeah. So when I went out there, um, it was the first time that I'd ever seen uh, children of doctors, business people, bankers, and well, that's a I big like, difference wow, from West Akron. It is, it is. It is. So I started like I wouldn't say fantasizing, but I would look for role models in their parents. Right. And I talked to some like I talked to some of my students, his fellow students, and I would ask, you know, what do your parents do? Uh, because they lived in you know very nice environments, and so yeah. I wanted to know what they did. So I, what I would have to do to get there. So yeah. you had that curiosity already as a teenager. Yes. Yeah. I want. I always wanted something better. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to live in a better environment, have better parents. Uh, because I knew that when I had a child, I would want I would want to bring that child up in that better environment uh, rather than the environment I came from. But one thing I learned is that even in those better environments, their families are screwed up too. <laughs> Absolutely, so, <laughs> I didn't learn that until later. But the grass you know, is I, not all well. The grass may be greener on the other side, but there's some weeds in that grass too. Exactly, so. exactly. <laughs> but the imagery was positive imagery that I experienced. Yeah. So I always yeah. tell myself, look, I, I have to go to college. So I you knew I that. To go. You knew that right. already then. Okay. I knew I had to. I just couldn't make it without it. I saw that things were more uh, computerized. You know, labor jobs were leaving, and so you had to really be on the the cusp of innovation. 
learn these new, t- uh, uh, um, get a degree or, and learn these new, uh, uh, these new occupations, you know. That's interesting so, that you had those thoughts already as a teenager, or or maybe it's me who was who was kind of, <laughs> uh, maybe I was the anomaly. I don't know, but it, it, I, all I remember is confusion and uncertainty in those years. I had no idea. I I knew I was good at football, and I knew I was smart. I didn't have, I didn't care for schoolwork at all right. because I couldn't. I never had the focus, but I knew I was right. smart, and I knew I was an exceptional athlete. But I never knew what. I was going to do with my life, but it seems like you, oh. it seems like you were already walking a path at that yeah. time. I, I didn't know how to get there though. I didn't have any positive, but you knew where problems. you wanted, you didn't know the I route, I, but I you knew where you wanted, wanted to, to go. Do. Yeah. Right. Right. So what happened was when I was 15 years old, my mother sat me down I was in the 10th grade. She said, I uh, know I was in the 11th grade, 16 years old, no 15. And she sat me down and said, look, you either go to job court or you live in the streets. Wow. I, I was not a bad kid, man. No. I just, my, my brother did drugs. She did drugs. And so I was always the odd man out. And so I never fit in. No. My brother was our favorite. You know, they were born on the same day, but, you know, I wasn't. And they got high together. And I was, what, was I the drug, say, what was the drug they, they marijuana. chose? Marijuana. Marijuana. Okay. We, yeah, she would, she would let him get high, let his friends smoke at the house. Wow. And I always criticized her for that. You know, yeah. you're a parent. Yeah. Said, look, you got to go. So rather than live in the streets, I chose Job Corps. And I, I was forced out of high school and put in Job Corps, which I think really helped save my life. Because even though I was, I, I went to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, I learned welding, a welding trade, and I got my GED. And this was at the age of 15. Right, right. I got my GED when I turned 16. So technically, I left high school a year before my peers left high school in Glen Oak. Uh, help me understand, how, how did you feel? Uh, I kind of look at that as a type of rejection. Your family rejected you in a way. Right. And right. that rejection literally took you out of the home and put right. you into a strange new situation, a whole state away. I was angry. And you were 15 years old. So you, yes, felt, was, you felt anger, yeah? I felt anger. I felt abandonment. Um, I felt rejection. Because your mother, and it sounds like your mother pretty much told you yeah, you have to get out. Exactly. Because I didn't approve of her lifestyle, you know the drugs and so, and so forth. So she told me I had to leave. Wow. Uh, for the, I, and that really, that severed our relationship. My father, you know, we'll talk about him too, but he was, he was no, he was worse. At least my mom tried you know, at some yeah. point, but she gave up. Uh, but my mother came from a dysfunctional environment. Yeah. She was never shown love and, and nurturing from her parents. So it was almost a generational curse. And those things are inherited. Not that it's uh, an excuse, but it is a reason for much, and, much uh, uh, abuse in families. Because if you've lived it, you have a tendency to pass it on to the next generation. Right. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. Uh, but, but, 
but it tends to be that way. And that's a sad thing. A lot right. of people don't understand that you can choose to step outside of that pattern. Right. And it's not something that has to be passed on to the next generation. Exactly. But see, and I was born in 1965. My mother was 15 years old. During that time, being a teenage mother carried a lot of stigmatism. Absolutely. Uh, ridicule. Absolutely. A lack of any type of understanding. There were no social programs for teenage mothers back then. No. She was really at a, in a bad state, and I think that warned her mentally. Her parents did not support her. When, when uh, she told my grandfather that she was pregnant, he threw her down the stairs. Oh, Lord. You know, oh, it's crazy, man, I tell you. That's why I told you before we talked, I said, I'll tell you about my life. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, yeah. But you know what? This, I, I do carry depression issues from that, you know, my childhood, and which I didn't realize until I left the police department because uh, I had to get a psychological evaluation. And they said, you suffer from chronic depression. And I was like, really? You know, I do? And so I was always wondering, why did I always feel isolated? Why did I feel alone? Why was I always stressed out, you know? And why do I always have these nightmares, you know, and, uh, and flashbacks from, from yes. you know, different issues in my life? And that those are, you know, signs of chronic depression. So, but anyway, when I left for job for it was a blessing in disguise because I was finally in a structured environment. Can we, let me let me stop you for a second. Tell, tell us what is Job Corps? You know, I have a lot of listeners. Uh, my, my listeners are divided about 50-50 between uh, the United States and outside of the United States. So there's a lot okay. of people that don't know what Job Corps is. Tell us what that is. It's, job Corps is a, uh, a, a trade school slash um, GED or high school diploma, a diploma uh, how do you say, residential facility. When you go away, and there's different locations throughout the country, you go live in this dormitory environment, and you get your high school or GED, and you learn a skilled trade. And you can be, at that time, you could, you could be a job corps for up to two years. And I, okay. the ages were uh, 15 to 22. Oh, wow, up you to could, 22. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I was 15, so my mom had to sign for me to go, which I did go, but so... It was a good environment. You know, I learned a skilled trade and I got my GED. So it was, you, it, it was sufficient adult supervision that it kept the environment clean. It kept it productive. There was no, you know, it, 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 there, there was no, no, uh, I, when I, because when no I think, feasance. yeah, because no when feasance. I, yeah, because when right. I think of a, of an institution like that, uh, if I can use the word institution, I, I, I feel that they have a tendency to get this stamp of disapproval that there's this underlying criminal element that's in it with little, no, it, very little adult it, supervision, but you, it wasn't like that at all. It was quite, no, controlled. not when I went, it was a highly structured environment and very nurturing. You had people there that they gave a damn about you. Yeah. They wanted to see you succeed. Yeah. You had, you had regular school teachers that, that taught in public schools, you know, and you had, uh, people from the, um, outside industries that were teach different skilled trades, carpentry, welding. You had, uh, medical assisting. Um, you could learn to be a chef. Was it, you know, a, was, was it a dormitory environment or did yes. you have your own? Okay, it was yeah. a dormitory. I actually went to, uh, where I went, I went up to Grand, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the place where I lived was a Gerald 
that we used to be the Jared Elementary School. Okay. Yeah. And they converted it to a dormitory and trade school and learning facility uh, with Job Corps. And it, like I said, it, it was a blessing. It got me out of that situation. You know, it showed me a different way. Yeah. You know, and I started to believe in myself. I would think that that was probably the first time in your life that you had any kind of structure with yes. with solid backup from adult figures. Am I right? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I had lived, I had lived around drugs and crime and so this changed uh, your life. Yeah. Pimps and prostitutes, you know, things like that. You know, I had come from that environment into a highly structured nurturing environment. So this and changed your life. Yeah. Oh, it did. It, it, it really did. And I left there after about nine months with my DD and my welding certificate. Uh, I went back home to my, my mom but as soon as I got there, I said, hey, I can't stay here. You just yeah, they knew. were still doing this. I knew it. I, I said, this will be a step back. Yeah. So I signed up for the U.S. Army, United States Army. I was 17 years old, and my mom had to sign for me to go. But I had my GED, and there was nothing stopping me. Right, right. So I joined, I joined the Army, and um, once I got there, you know, that helped to make a man out of me, you know. Well, sure, still, discipline, starting in boot I, right. camp, starting in boot camp probably, right. and then and then whatever right. you experienced while you were serving, absolutely. And that stays with you for life, absolutely. as you know. Absolutely, absolutely. U.S. Marines, for me, it changed yeah. my life. That is right. the basis of who I am today, is based on my time in the United States <laughs> Marines, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. You, you learn to see things through. Sure. Sure. You know, and failure was not an option. So I said, you know what? I'm. St I left the army, and I I left the army in December, and I started at Kent State in the fall. I still didn't. I still didn't have exactly what I needed. You know, I still didn't have. Um, I knew about making things happen, but I was still working on that that progress, that that okay. path yeah. to to achievement. Yeah. So, and plus being that I was in the army and. I, uh, uh, kind of an isolated environment. Once I got out of the army, oh man, it was party time. <laughs> I was still young. I was still, I was 20 time years old. Time to cut loose a little bit. <laughs> oh my God. You had the fraternity houses and it was like, oh, do I, do I read this book or do I go party, you know, at the fraternity house? And so the fraternity house won out at that time. It took me a while to get to where I needed to be. In terms, in terms of a positive frame, uh, a frame well, of mind. Well, everybody has to play a little bit. Everybody has right. to have that phase where they play a little bit. Man, so. I played a lot. Okay, <laughs> jeez. But you know, the person I am today is a result of all those experiences. Sure. So, um, for the whole time while I was on, and like I said, I I started in '86 at Kent State University. I bombed out in 1990. Okay. And I joined the uh, uh, police department in 1992. I'm sorry. Um, let's, let's talk about that. What led you to the police department? What made you want to work there? Well, a buddy of mine was a fireman in Maslin. And I actually wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, I took the fireman's, firefighter's exam in Canton, Ohio. I scored in the top five, but since I, was not, I wasn't a paramedic, they skipped over me. Okay. They wanted paramedics, uh, and that was a you know a big advantage for them sure. because it would save them money. Yeah. You know, from sending people to paramedic schools. Right. Um, 
I said, you know what? This Akron police uh, exam is, is coming up. They started out at 28 a year versus 20 in Canton for the okay. fireman's exam. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I'll go ahead and take the police exam. Go where the money is. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but see, money's not everything. Well, it's my grandmother used to say, bless her heart. She used to say, uh, money, um, how does she say that? Money will not buy you happiness, but it will pay for the search. Right. Oh, okay. All right. She was a wise woman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of sums it up right there because money is not everything, but money is something. Right. In other words. Right. Yeah. Right. It was something. All right. <laughs> it was something. <laughs> well, back you in know, those days, an $8,000 salary difference was, it was pretty, big. that was pretty significant. All right. That was pretty right. significant. I had just gotten married and, uh, you know, we wanted to, you know, buy a house and so forth. And, you know, so I said, you know, let me go and take the police exam. I took that, passed it, and I got hired in 1992. Yeah. February the 8th, I think, February the 18th, 1992 was when I got hired. I was in Okinawa at that time, U.S. Marines. Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, then, you know, I knew, I knew that it would not be a lifelong endeavor on the police department because... Why? I view police officers as stifled mentally because they're dealing with the same, same stuff day in and day out. And it, the environment was not conducive to learning, you know, it, it, didn't, it, yeah. didn't, it did not help expand my <clears throat> worldview. Okay. Um, it didn't take me places where I really wanted to go and, and it didn't challenge me enough. Okay. Um, I wanted to be challenged because Change comes, change comes with conflict, but I wanted the type of conflict that kept me kind of, you know, off a little bit so I would learn. So you, you know, didn't want, correct that. you didn't want that easy path. You wanted something that would challenge you. You wanted right. something that would force you to stretch out. Right. And expand I wanted your... to be, I wanted to be indispensable. Okay. Police officers are, are dispensable. A dime you a dozen. That. Dime a dozen. A dime a dozen. It's, it's always some guy waiting to take your job. So... I always felt uncomfortable with that. You know, I wanted to make myself such a valuable asset uh, that I would not be just a throwaway type of person, but I wanted to be uh, in charge of my own destiny. See, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with, with, with just about all of that. I guess I had a different perspective because when I became a police officer, again, I, I grew up from the time I was seven. That's when we moved out of the city. Yeah, you did. We were out here in this rural atmosphere mm -hmm. and right. then i had uh, my 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 little stint in in college and then off into the marines and then when i came back and eventually got into police work it was in it was on the south side of chicago which was this big wow. busy urban uh place with challenges that i had never seen before oh okay you see okay. what i'm saying that, that, yeah, yeah comparatively right. if i were to compare you and i i was much more sheltered because of where i grew up right right so for me to start working in as a police officer in that kind of environment in a big city area like chicago it was an extreme challenge Okay. And for me, okay. it was a it was a it was a uh, a period of 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 pretty drastic growth for me. Okay. Okay. So I found I, I was able to find the challenger, but I can see with the background that you had, you know, you had already had, uh, you know, you you knew what the city you know what the city was like. You knew what right. the streets I know were what the like. Hell was 
the streets are like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. See, and I didn't know that. I, I, I never uh, knew that until I bet, right. <laughs> right. Until I started working. So. Like, wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember coming home right. that first day after my first shift, you know, coming out of the academy and I start working out and I was literally like, wow, okay, this right. is what I signed up for. See, you know, I always, I was a little envious of guys like you who, but I didn't know that your life would be just as crazy or not worse than mine. You know, I always thought, well, you know, here's a black guy yeah. who, who, who's, whose father's a professional and who's living in a good environment. And here I am. When we lived in Canton, another thing that uh, really changed me, we lived, I lived in public housing. Right. But our public housing projects is right smack dab in the middle of the suburbs. Uh-huh. So I could walk a block over and see all of these families, you know, with right. fathers and, right. you know, uh, happy and having backyard yeah. parties yeah. and this and that. And that was totally new to me. So I, I could actually walk over to your backyard and see you, you know, doing your little family outing in the back and take inspiration from that because I, I didn't see. have that. I see. You know? That's a unique yeah. experience because most people, when they think of housing projects, they think that it's totally removed from those kind of experiences, but you were right, right there, right beside it. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> see, see, I, I never had that. I never had that. Um, I, I, w- I wasn't streetwise until I started oh. working. Until I started working the, the police job. I became right. someone who was aware of the streets right, during right, the course right. of my, I was an officer for seven years. Okay. And that's when I learned uh, about the streets and what was going on. I, it, it wasn't inherent. The code, the code of the streets. Yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> right. I, I did not grow up with that. Yeah. Um, but even in these subur- suburban homes, these rural homes, you know, there there are there is an element. There can be an element of ugliness uh, within the four walls of the home. Oh, I know, right? So, um, and and you know, and one thing I learned about, let's say, your community when you're growing up. They didn't call the police no. on domestic issues. They never called the police. Never did. Which further enhances false image of uh, of happiness and ecstasy and just, you know, living on the, and I think, you know, yeah, and that goes, well-being. exactly, and that ties into what I was talking about earlier about how my friends from my high school days, talking with them, they think that I had this this enchanted life. Yeah, ideal life, right. When, All American life. Exactly. When I walked around and those were the most depressing, uh, isolating moments of my life. Wow. See, I didn't realize that until I got yeah. older. Yeah. Which, you know what, is probably good because the idealized image I had of people like you helped to push me because I wanted to be part of that culture. Right. It was motivation. You know? It was something you were reaching right. for. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I probably, if you and I went to the same high school, I would have looked at you and listened to you and watched you, you know, and watched how your parents would come to the school and, and pick you up, use proper English, uh-huh. um, upstanding, you know, beautiful closeness from what I could see, you know, it was, I, I, you know, and I want that. You know, talking about the trauma or the, the, the depressive times and all that stuff, you know, it, it, it was what it was. But I will say this. Right. Um, I think probably the best things that my parents ever did for me was to move out of Goodyear Heights. Oh, definitely. And move, definitely. Us, move us out there to Norton. You know, uh, we were a solid, uh, we had a solid upper middle class uh, upbringing. Um, right, um, right. So I am fortunate for that. But again, yeah. that's solid at what, upper middle at what, at what cost, right? Exactly. At what cost? Yeah, I know. At what cost? 
I understand. I understand. Like I said, I know that now, you know. So, so you, you walk into this police job and you, you, how long did it take you before you realized that, that it wasn't going to be a lasting career for you? I got hired on February the 18th. I would say February 19th. <laughs> <laughs> didn't take you long. No, okay. Well, let me, well, well let me ask you this then. Um, with that in mind, you still worked there for 15 years. That's yeah, what, I, that could be potentially five years away from retirement. Right, right. That, because I had a child, you know, I had a son, and the insurance was incredible. Yeah. I was able to afford certain things. Yes. And that became kind of like an anchor. You know, you become somewhat complete because, you know, you got money coming in, you're working side jobs, you're making seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year, you know, including extra jobs and that kind of thing. So, but in the back of your mind, I still, in the back of my mind, I still had that 1.97, and I, I saw I saw the police department as almost like a um, a chain gang type of thing where they controlled you while you were on duty, while yeah. you were off duty. Yeah, your salary you had a salary cap where you could never really go above that. Right, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, it was yeah. almost like being in the military. It was a paramilitary experience. Yeah, and I wanted I wanted true independence. You know, uh, I don't knock, I don't knock people like you, you know, no, no, no. but again, you and I had, you and I had a little bit different experiences in, in, in a couple of ways. One, uh, uh, I have a, I have a different, I had a different childhood, uh, just because of the, yeah. the, 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 the location where I, where I grew up. But also I think I had a different kind of police department because it was a suburban, uh, you know, we were only, what, maybe right. 60, 65 officers, whereas Akron, oh, wow. okay. Akron is a major, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a major city with all of the yeah. major city internal politics that right. you have to, 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 to navigate oh, through. Oh, my God, it was horrible. And man. I would imagine it's also more of a cookie-cutter um, work environment because it's such a big department. And it's it has to be run in more of a paramilitary style. Whereas, it does. Whereas we were more, you know, of a genuine brotherhood where I was. Not to say that there weren't internal politics there, there but it's okay. just it's it's not in the same scale. We were such a small department. Right. Okay. I think sixty sixty five officers at the top end. So. Oh wow! See, we had five hundred fifty officers. Right. Right. At that time, see, honestly, you have to have. A, mil- a military structure and a sense of control over your officers to maintain sure. um, that type of environment. You know, they had to be that way. They had to micromanage. They had to really kind of structureize you know, and not be too casual. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Like, like in your department, there's more of a brotherhood. You know, hey, you know, John, hey, Les, you know, you're talking to the chief or whatnot, and everything's a little more casual as long as you did your job. You know? Right, right. But see, so you could do your job. And in a department like Akron is still have to deal with the politics. Yeah, know. see, we, we had the opportunity to sit in the break room and have a cup of coffee with the chief and, right. and shoot and okay. shoot the shit with the chief. And I would imagine right. you can't do that at a department like Akron. Not really. No, you, you have to be, it has to be a divider because you have to right. maintain that, that structure. Right, you know? exactly. You can't be too friendly, yeah. you know, because the whole system could collapse. 
Right. See, things so, things may have changed where I was now, but at that time it was fairly well laid back. A, a little bit of internal politics. You know, there was a, right. uh, in such a small department, there sure were a lot of officers who had the same last name. <laughs> I'll put right, it to you that way. Right. So there was... Some, yeah, oh, yeah, nepotism. That's, <laughs> that thing happened. So there's but then a, there was a, the racism, too. Yeah, that you know, and, really, that, and I will say this, that was an issue. Um, right. Uh, there was a lot of talk, a lot of issues about there not being enough black officers where I was, uh, right. you know, to represent the citizenry. Same thing in Akron. Yeah. It was the same thing. Which blows you know. my mind. You know, I've been, I, I've, I've been keeping up throughout the years with a, a little bit of the politics in Akron and whatnot. And I could right. never understand with the city having the demographic that it has, why has the police department never really reflected that in such a big city as Akron? And to have that kind of a problem is, is pretty deplorable. Exactly. You know, they did not represent the media that they served. And That's pretty there was ugly. so much. That's pretty right. ugly. And, and the institutional racism, you know, um, even black, the black officers, if you weren't, uh, um, Let's say some, someone that tried to really with the white colleagues. If you if, if you didn't sacrifice, if you sacrificed your social identity as an African American, you could fit in. But see, I'm all, I was always conscious of who I am and the struggles that I've been through, and the struggles of my friends, because a yes. lot of people that we arrested were people I grew up with. Yeah. And I always had a little. I always had compassion for them, and sure. and you know I would have. Uh, black prisoners tell me because I drove the wagon. Okay. Tell me, look, I'm glad you showed up because they were beating my ass and things like that. So I always knew that, you know, racism was a big problem. Isn't we it frustrating? Had, had, isn't it frustrating to hear, especially in the political climate of the last four years? Isn't it frustrating to hear people try to downplay or deny? Um, systematic racism and racism, period. It's, it's, well, you know, it, it's, 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 yeah. How do you feel about it? That? It, it bothers me, but not to the degree they did back then because mm. not to sound arrogant, I've succeeded in this racist culture. Yes. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor, professor, business person. So I tell them that no matter how you feel about me, I'm better off than you are. When go. I encounter a racist. Doesn't you know, that feel good? Doesn't that feel yeah, good? <laughs> it does, but at the same time, I'm no better than the poorest of the poorest person. But when I'm confronted with racists who, who try and uh, marginalize me as a person, because I am an African-American first. Yes. Okay. Because that's the first thing you see. Right. When you see me. Right. You see a black person. You don't see a police officer. You don't see a college professor. You don't see a doctor. You don't see a lawyer. You don't see anything like that. You see me as a black man. And so that's how I carry myself. I'm always conscious of how I present myself to others. If you understand what I'm saying, because I don't oh, want absolutely. I don't want to uh, uh, legitimize or give them something to say, see, see, that's what I was saying about black people. I'm glad you say that because I'm also very conscious of that. See, it, not only am I a black man, but I'm a black man in Norway, and that's a special thing. <laughs> that's a whole right, that's right. a whole nother suitcase of challenges that has to be yeah. that has to be opened up and, and, and sorted through. 
And, and you're also American, American too. Also American. So yeah, so yes. so it, there's a lot of benefits in all of those things, but there's also a lot of baggage uh, right. that presents a whole nother set of problems and challenges. But I am very aware. I don't, I don't want to give those people who want to put me in a box, who want to put a stamp yeah. on my forehead. I, I don't want to give them a reason. I don't want to give them an excuse. Right. I don't exactly. want to support any of their ideas. I don't want them to be able to say, yeah, look at, look at John. See, I, I know, told you. I know. Exactly. Look at him. He's exactly. just, he's just like they are. I don't want them exactly. to say that. And at the same time, I don't want, I don't want to say things that put my community in a bad light. Right. So those same people can say, see, less said it. So it must be true. Well, we, I agree with you right there. I'm very conscious of my presentation. How right, am I presenting right. myself? How am I representing? Exactly. Exactly. It's important. It, it's a little bit extra baggage, but I carry it. Oh, I carry it. I carry it oh willingly God, yes. and proudly. Willingly and proudly. Oh, definitely. Definitely. When, 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 I, when I walk into a university and I'm probably one of three African-American professors, there's a certain responsibility that I carry. Yeah, and and I bestow that responsibility with my students, you know. And I always, I mean, I, I love all of my students, but I pay particular interest to African American students because on a campus like Kent State University, we're isolated. Yeah, we never really fit into the structure of the university. So I always try and inspire everybody, but I really try and inspire those African American students. Yeah, because I am. I'm also a Kent State alumni, so I take pride in that. And I tell you, I, in in an average classroom of forty students, I may have one black person. And wow. They could they could be African. They could be <sighs> Indian. Yeah. I consider them black too, but it could be any any from any demographic. Right. Okay. Right. So I'm all in my with my third eye. I'm always looking to see if they're okay. You know, I, I, it 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 feels good to be talking about this because it's a subject that doesn't get touched on often enough. Um, right. I experience very often here in Norway when I bring up that topic about how, in certain areas of society, there's so little representation for Black people, and people look at me or they tell me that I'm crazy or too focused on that but you i don't think you can be focused enough because there's no nope. one there's not enough advocacy for the black viewpoint for the black experience for right, the black standpoint right uh, because we're we are part of society too but society very often shoves us out to the fringes somebody right, has to right. advocate for us Exactly. And I do. I'm an advocate. You know, I'm an advocate for I'm also an advocate for LGBTQ uh, individuals, uh, people of color, women, all marginalized societies. It's about it's about equality across the board, regardless, equality across the board, regardless. And who could be against that? I, 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 I ask this question almost daily. How can people be against that? What does right. it harm you if the other becomes a part of the common society? How does that exactly. harm you? But people act like it's going to take something from them exactly. to be I inclusive. Mean, I don't understand it. Well, it's about power. The more if you introduce other cultures into, let's say, America with white, white supremacy, if you introduce other cultures, they feel like you're going to take away from their culture. Right. 
that's why they're trying to keep other cultures out of this country. Mexicans, unless you come from Norway. <laughs> Norway's other, okay. Norway's okay. Exactly, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> other uh, uh, European countries. You know, if you come from Mexico, if you come from Africa, if you come from any other place of color, uh, they try and keep you out of the country because they feel like you're going to take away from right, right. American culture right. and you're going to make it uh, uh, less white. So it's a balancing act for, for people like you and me. It is. It is. You know, um, we have to balance being uh, African-Americans and also balance working in the system. Right. Which is a burden at times. We have to have a dual consciousness. We have to learn how to act in both environments. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, tiring. It's tiring it sometimes. Is. Oh, my God. Yeah, man. I don't know. It was, it, And it was a real eye-opener for me coming to Norway. It, it made me... And this is a strange thing to say. It's hard to, to, to verbalize it. But coming to Norway made me even more aware of my blackness as an American. Wow. I can imagine that. I mean, are you often the only black person in, oh, this, yeah. in, in the room? And yes. Oh, the only Everywhere. American in the room? Constantly. Right, right. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, that's not hard to imagine. So there's, so there's, a, there's a certain amount of marginalization uh, in the United States, which is bad enough. But you can multiply that you know, to the nth power over here right. in Norway. Right. I lived in Germany when I was in the military. And one thing I found with the Germans is that it's not a lot of racism, but there can be a lot of anti-Americanism. Right. Yeah. So I was, I, I felt more comfortable in Europe than I did in America because a lot of Germans knew African-Americans as being victims Right. Yes. Of the American system. So yeah. they would they would go out of their way to treat you like a human being. So yeah. at one point in time, I was going to stay over there, but I knew I wanted to come back and go to college. So right, right. That's why well, I did Well, you know, and, and I see that, that, uh, that little extra amount of compassion and understanding here in Norway. I see that as well. But there's also an undercurrent of xenophobia and racism here, but it's different. It's like racism light. I don't, oh. I don't, I'm not out in the streets fearing for my life uh, from the police yeah, or, or yeah. things like that. Um, Good. So in that way, it doesn't compare with what we go through in America. But there is this undercurrent of, um, yeah, I, I feel, I always feel like I have to, and maybe this is just a, well, no, it's not just a feeling. This is something that manifests itself uh, in, in practical terms, where I have to do a little extra to prove myself. Oh, they see, they okay. see, and here's another thing. You know, they'll see the the skin color, so they'll treat me accordingly. But then, when they find out I'm from the United States, it's almost as if they breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, okay, oh. you're okay then. Wow. And so, what does that say? Am I supposed to be thankful for that, wow. or am I supposed to take that for the xenophobia that it is? You see what you I'm know, saying? It's, I, it's, it's I, a I very dynamic situation. It puts you in a transactional situation where you have to use that as leverage to better the outcome of whatever you're dealing with. Exactly. And then move on, and then exactly. move on. Yeah. You know. But it's tiring. Um, it's a step. It is tiring. Ex, I bet those extra steps that have to be gone through and. and it, yeah. it, it Racism's tiring, period. Oh, <laughs> it's tiring, brother. Gotta have we're, a born, strong we're, born, we're born in the belly of the beast and we die in the belly of the beast. Amen. You know? In order to be successful, you have to learn how to deal with it, you know? You, um... Wow, what a conversation here. I had something, and we keep, we keep, we keep branching off here. Let me, yeah, yeah, can, I, okay. can I go back to your educational time? Of course. Okay? Of course, do it. So... Yeah. <clears throat> 
you you get your bachelor's uh, in health healthcare information. No, and, my bachelor's in general studies. General oh, so I'm studies. sorry. I'm sorry. In general studies, then you get your master's in in healthcare information, business, business, and business. MBA, yeah. and MBA information. Got it. Now, doctorate. Yes, sir. Talk about that. I started my doctoral program in 2013 at Walden University, a virtual learning online platform. Um, I did that because I had so much success during my uh, my master's period. And I really like the convenience of taking classes when I wanted to. Like I could be like I'm a nighttime person. Yeah, you know. Take my, <laughs> how, are you, take my how are you still right awake now, now man? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, well, with the, uh, you know, I breed dogs, and I, I sometimes have to get up in the middle of the night and yeah. take them out, and I go back yeah. to bed. It's basically about them because they're puppies right now. So. I want to talk about your breeding, your breeding business as well. Okay. I want to okay. talk. About, but your but your doctor, what is your doctor degree in? My doctorate is in uh, business administration, a DBA, with a focus on leadership. Yeah. There you go. So, right. So I started in 2013, and I finished in December of 2017. That was a journey. The hardest thing I've ever had to do. Why? What made it so um, hard? All the academic research, putting everything together. Yeah. Right. Putting everything together to format a conclusion. You know, conducting the uh, uh, um, analysis part of it. Because you start out with a hypothesis. It has to be unique and it has to bring something to the field. Right. You can't copy off anybody else. No, it's got to be all original. Yes, yes. Your own thoughts. And you, (laughs) oh my God, man, it was so hard. And then you have to use all the resources and references from uh, 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 different uh, experiments. you have to use all of that to help uh, solidify your conclusion. And um, it was very intense. And then you have to present that during an oral defense. You have to defend your research. You have to defend uh, your whole study. Yeah. So that was really, really arduous. <laughs> I, get a, and I, get a headache. I get a headache just thinking about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to send you a link to my doctoral studies on the internet. Do that, please. I'd love to read I'll that. I'll send it to you. Oh, brother. Yes, yes, yes. Um, my doctoral study was, um, oh, geez, I'm so tired right now. What, was, what time is uh, it there? It is, I'm okay, bro. It's like 2.17 in the morning. But <laughs> my doctoral research was how to maximize profit and minimize losses uh, while using green supply chain management. Okay. You know, so I'll send, it, I'll send the link to you. Do that, please. You can actually read it. You can actually I'll, read, I'll read it. it and I'll, po- I'll post yeah. it with this episode too so my listeners can see oh, it. Oh, oh, great, great, great. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun research, a lot of time. Uh, I spent up to 12 hours a day doing Man. my research and writing my, uh, they call it uh, doctoral study. Yeah. But it's a dissertation, yeah. You know, and it has to be sequenced in a certain format. You have to ask different, answer different questions based on uh, um, university requirements, and it, it's 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 a uh, it was tough. It was tough. I can imagine. 
See, that's the kind of stuff that that's the yeah. kind of stuff that scares me away from furthering my education. <laughs> Brother, you could do it. Trust me. You take I everything you've been through. Yeah. You take everything you've been through in your life and use it as motivation, and and you can do anything. Absolutely. You could. And I and I you know, and, I do believe that. And, and you talk about the age, uh, um, level of uh, the age demographic during your studies. I leveled out evenly during my doctoral uh, uh, pro program. I wasn't the youngest. I was right. I wasn't the oldest. I was right there Yeah. with my peers. See, and that's and an eye opener. Cause I never would have thought of, I never would have thought of it that way. I would yeah. always, I, I've always imagined, I'd say probably for the last 15, maybe the last 20 years <laughs> that if I were to go back and start to reeducate myself, I would definitely be the oldest one, but I can see what I I'm 51, 51. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm on a couple. Of, now you, you, you would be somewhere in the upper two thirds. Okay. Thirds as yeah. far you wouldn't be the oldest. You wouldn't no. be the youngest. You no. got people who are 80 or 90 years old going back to school, man. And yeah. online learning is, is, is the best thing for them. Well, that's the way I would definitely, the way I would go, it would have right. to be online. I would have to do things right in my, in my own little bubble, you know, the classroom, right. the classroom environment, just I know that that's no. not for me. That is not I, for me. When I was, when I was, I, that's, I think I told you I was 43 and I started back. Yeah. I started back in the classroom, you know, and I was often the oldest one or two students in the classroom. A lot of youngsters, you know, but that's okay though. I mean, I'll shine them all. <laughs> I did brother. I mean, <sighs> but one thing about that is that when you are a non-traditional student, you tend to have a little more respect by your professors. Because a lot of them are your age. That's right. And so they're going to treat they're going to treat you different. You stay at the class, and I see. you know you talk to them. You talk to them almost like a peer. I see. Yeah. You know, and so you're more comfortable with them. I remember one instructor, and I cannot remember her name. And I don't know if she still teaches or not at Kent State. And she told me, she said, "Look, you're smart. You're focused. Get your doctorate degree. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you go, as long as it's a credit. But you need to get your and that meant a lot to me. Yeah. I also, uh, an attorney that was teaching at Kent State, she had worked with law enforcement, you know, the prosecutors, et cetera. So we had a similar background. Okay. Yeah. And we really, we dialogued. She also inspired me. Yeah. And I saw her after I got my doctor degree. Uh-huh. And uh, we were, the girl I was talking, going out with at the time, she, we went to a store and I saw her. And she didn't quite remember me. She knew I looked familiar, but then I stopped her. I said, you remember me, you know, and I talked. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, you know what? You, you inspired me. I'm a doctor now. And it was such an emotional experience. That's man. beautiful. You see somebody, you, you're an undergrad with no degree, and then you see them, and you're a doctor. <laughs> That's beautiful. You're on their level, man. It, it's, it almost brought tears to my eyes. I get that feeling quite a bit. Um the first job that I had here in Norway was as a teacher and a project leader uh, okay. at, a, at a high school. Wow. And so this is back in 2002. I got that job actually before I even learned how to speak Norwegian. Really? I got that job based on my background as a police officer. Um, oh. I, I, worked, uh, I was a narcotics and gang detective and also a juvenile officer. And it's wow. that combination 
uh, you know, especially having the, the, the background as a juvenile officer that got me into this teaching, Good, teaching environment and, and, and leading a project here in, in, in Norway. And so this is back in 2002. So when I had some of these kids, they were as young as 12 years old. Oh, now, okay. now I see them almost 20 years later. I run into them around town and I tell you, it's so emotional to see some of these people who at the time were kids who were living in a troubled household. And, you know, not to say that I have some kind of God complex, but just to know that I had a hand in making things a little bit easier for them. Yeah, and you, and you and can I, do that. You never know how you inspire people. And, and some of them, some of the things that they're telling me, um, and it's, it, I, I barely remember who some of these people are when they approach me today. Right. And it's not embarrassing. Right. It's just that, you know, at the time, people, I didn't really, you know? yeah, it was a lot of people, and, and I may not have had that much contact with them as a child. But when they right. tell me now as an adult, you know, they've got a, a spouse, they've got kids, they've got a career, and they tell me how something I said or did molded their path. And right. it's a humbling experience because that whole thing where you say you never know who you affect Right. That's a, that's a, that's a very responsible, I mean, you have to be responsible. That's a big and important position to be in because you can influence people for the betterment of their lives, but you can also have a negative effect on someone's life. So you have to be aware of how you, you know, we talked about presentation and how you carry yourself and how you represent. That is something that you have to be aware of constantly all the time because as good as it feels to influence someone where you better their path you can also ruin someone's life if exactly. you aren't if you aren't acting right at the right, right. time exactly. it's a humbling I'm it's humbling always conscious yeah i'm always conscious of my public interactions it's very humbling when, when people when people know that you're a professor, doctor, police officer, whatever, they expect more. They expect something out of you, yeah. And if you if you negate that presentation, it reflects on the whole, absolutely, uh, the whole demographic, the whole you know occupation. Uh, oh, you just you know, if you give them a good thing, it's like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, that's that's great. You know, I can maybe be like that person. But if you uh, negate that positive image, then it could reflect on on all black men, all yeah. Whoever, you know, all black people, whatever, you know. So I was always, I'm always conscious of that when I'm on campus. I teach at two universities, by the way. Yeah, you're at Kent State, right? Kent State. And because of the pandemic, they've, uh, they were learning. So I'm not working there right now. I'm on a hiatus from there. But I also teach at uh, uh, an HBCU or historically black college university, uh, um, Knoxville College in Tennessee. I'm sorry, that's, say that again. All, I, lo- I lost you. It's called you. Knox, Knoxville College in Tennessee. They're okay, Knoxville, Tennessee, yeah. Yeah, they're about 100, 200 years old. I can't remember exactly, back in the 1800s. But um, an online learning, they have an online learning platform right now. So I'm, I'm teaching online. I teach business courses, ethics, finance, economics, uh, business, basic business courses. Wow. I've been teaching there for about uh, two or three years. Wow, man! Congratulations. Thank you. So and not that, not only not only a professor, not only a teacher, but a teacher at an HBCU. Man, my right. Is it possible to respect you any more than I do? Oh my God, man! <laughs> you would do the same. You and you would you would take the same path I did. 
You Absolutely. Know, I know you would. So. Absolutely. If you could teach at an HBCU virtually where you're at now, you'd probably do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I would. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a calling, you know, and it's a responsibility. You know, it's not. Well, it's about I giving mean, back. We, it's about giving right. back. It's about sharing, sharing right. of the success. And if we don't exactly. do that internally, we're never going to lift ourselves as a people. Exactly. Yeah. I've dealt with so many student-related issues. You know, I'm also, uh, it's, it's like I'm also a parent. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, these are young students, you know. Looking and, for a mentor. I, They're young right, students right. looking and for a mentor. I use, I use innovation to help these students reach their goals, you know. I provide, you know, extra compassion. I do that with every student, yeah. not just at, at the HBCU. I do it at Kent State as well. Yeah. You know, I'm always trying to push people by being a servant leader, giving them the, the example, you know, and making that example attainable for them. You know, yeah. and yeah. it's a person, it's, it's a very personal thing for me coming from my humble beginnings. You know, I feel it's my responsibility at, my, right. at our age and our fifties, we don't. We're not really concerned. We're concerned about altruism and giving back, yeah. and inspiring the next generation. We want to be ter- uh, comfortable now. Sure, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing but we wrong also with that. want to inspire. We want to uh, provide inspiration. You know, that pretty much wraps up the reason why I do this podcast. You know, right. um, of of course, I'm 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 in it for for for. For my 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 yeah my egotistical you know for my self betterment uh, uh, right. there's a there's a lot of that in there, but I also want to be able to my my goal is after every conversation with every guest, I want it to have lifted me, enlightened me in some way, motivated me and inspired me in some way, but I also want that same thing to happen for my listeners. I want them to listen to you and I and be able to pull out elements of this conversation and apply it to their practical lives. Right. I want to give that, I want to open that door and give that to my listeners. Um, Well, I pray that I, I I pray that my story reaches one person. Well, it has me, me. So so mission accomplished already. I'm honored, honored, man. I'm honored, John. You know, I, I love you, brother. You know, um, I'm a very humble person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a lot of people who didn't make it to where I'm at. I've lost friends to death, drugs, you know, and other issues. Well, it really is so amazing I, that what you've gone through and and, right. and 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 being able to reach the the level that you're at regardless. That's uh yeah. that's an achievement. God, that's motivating. God God has protected me, man. I tell you. Cuz I've fallen, I've fallen many times. I, I've fallen so many times, but I've gotten back up. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep pushing, you know, I keep pushing. I never let anyone determine my, my outcome. And I, and that's something that I, I really thank the police department for, because I saw a lot of people who were complacent. I see. Yeah. You know, they were fighting for, um, a dollar pay raise or whatever, you know, <laughs> to me, I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> not, I mean, money's not everything, but you're fighting for a dollar pay raise. And you say that. And I remember, I want to say it was around 99, 2000, right around there. There was a lot of issues in the Akron police department about the pay. And I remember thinking, why are they being so nitpicky? Because it's not a meaningful sum. Maybe it was back like a dollar, a 50 cent raise or something. And they were just, yeah, 1%, 2% raises. That's what they were going for. And and just, uh, yeah, I was it seemed, it seemed like it seemed like they had the wrong focus. 
<laughs> but you know what? They created this 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 this, um, this culture down there where you settle for scraps. Yeah, yeah. You know, a two percent or one percent pay raise is not a lot. You know, and if you got a family, you want. I mean, to me, I want to be a little more independent to where I yeah. can determine what I bring home. Right. Through my hard work and my efforts. Yes. You know. And the amount of stress you're dealing with down there, man, you deserve to make six figures a year. Sure, sure. You know, but they're, they're nitpicking and, you know, it's always something. You got to give to get and, and the politics and it was horrible, man. The racism, you know, you got a third of the, the population down there are police officers, but maybe one or two percent are in are in management. You know, right, right. You got you got African-American police officers down there with master's degrees. And they're not being promoted at the same rate that the white counterparts who don't have any degrees are being promoted. And how can that be ignored? How can that be allowed to perpetuate? Why is there no change in that? I, I, you know, numbers don't lie. So it's not like people are just boohooing about an issue that doesn't exist. It is, it's, it is an issue. It's a concrete issue that the black population is not represented in the police force in Akron. And the officers who are there are not being promoted along the same lines as their white counterparts. How is that ignored year after year after year? Because they create a culture of fear amongst African-American officers. If you expose certain things, it's going to come back to bite you in the future, you're going to suffer the repercussions of your decisions. Okay. So these officers are more reluctant to expose the disparities on the department. Okay. So they settle, they settle and they settle or they punish other African-Americans in the community unjustifiably to prove their worth to the white supremacist structure, a white supremacist structure down there. Our infrastructure, should I say? So you know, it's it, it's something you know where you have to give and sacrifice who you are, right? In just to prove to get, your worth, yeah. In order to get the the scraps off the table, man, that's just uh, yeah. So so you you've come away from that that that. Um, that uh, well, I mean, you you have a traditional job in the sense that you are you're a professor and 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 you're getting your income from that. But you've also branched out into something that is quite the independent venture. Tell me about these beautiful dogs. I tell you, man, you, you post you 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 post these pictures, and it just makes me want to get a dog. And I can't uh, because I I'm you, brother, su- I can't though. I'm super. I'm hyper allergic. So oh, I, that's right. Yeah, that's you told right. Me yeah. That. Right, but you right. t- tell me about this. First of all, what made you get interested in breeding dogs? And then just tell, just kind of tell me about the the ins and outs of it and your experience with it. When I when I started my master's degree, well, probably towards the end of it, financial aid was running out because you, you don't have an unlimited supply of money from the government. Right. Right. You know that runs out. So we, we, we do have an un, unlimited supply from the government here in Norway, by the way, wow, for educational man, oh man, purposes. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! So I had to figure out another way to to make money so I could complete, you know, complete my process and my doctorate. So um, I just sat down one day and I started brainstorming and I, I started looking at different options and um, dog breeding somehow popped up in my mind. So. I, um, I contact, at first I wanted to bring cane corsos. Uh-huh. Um, so I looked into it and the profit margin was not high enough. 
Oh, really? I not, I, no, I couldn't. Such you a beautiful get, and popular animal. I would think that that would be profitable. No, no okay. No, you you can get a, a world-class tank, tank corso for $1,500 okay. or less. You know, it could be 1000 but I looked at old English Bulldogs, and they were going for 2000 $2,500 or so. I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and get into that. So I, I bought my first one, a male, in 2011. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, 2011. I think I was in my master's program. 2011, I bought him for about uh, $1,200 from Michigan. And so I let him grow a little and save more money. I uh, got my financial aid uh, uh, kickback checks. <laughs> and I bought my female. Uh-huh. And I tell you, man, I, I you know you have nine puppies that at that time they were going for fifteen hundred dollars. I was selling them at that amount, and you know you get twelve, thirteen. Oh, we lost him. Let's see. Let me call him back. Okay, we had some technical difficulties, but uh, I will call him back, and in the blink of an eye, we'll be back. Okay. There uh, we go. There we go. Well, sorry about that, man. I apologize. No, that's okay. No yeah. problem. No problem. Um, you're probably running out of time too. So let, let me let me just get the the the, the story of your um, dog breeding, and then we can we can wrap it up. So if we have like maybe another just another ten or fifteen minutes just to wrap things up, how's yeah, that? Yeah, that'll be fine. I'm I'll make it short and quick. Like I said, I bought my first uh, nail in 2011. Uh, uh, he aged about a year or so, saved up money and bought a female. And from there, like I said, you know, uh, my puppies went for about $1,500. So I would have 10, 9, 8, you know, I would have pretty large litters and I could make, you know, 14, 15,000 at the time. Wow. Uh, and I would imagine the overhead, the, the overhead is probably right. not that, that, that expensive either. So it's, yeah, it it was. It wasn't bad because they were also pets, right? You know, so uh, right. you know, and my son and his friends would play with them, and yeah. it, it was a good environment. You know, I sure. believe every child should have a pet if possible. You know, sure, sure. So um, I just did it. I, I you know, I, I sold you know puppies. I got through graduate school. I got through my doctoral process, and now, um, as of recent, I have been able to save money, and I spent about twenty thousand dollars on three dogs. Uh-huh. Um, the, the dogs that you see are pretty high-end. Yeah, they're um, beautiful animals. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. Thank you. You know, if, you, if you're going to do something, you, you do, as, do as well as you can, and well, you give it your best. Oh, and, know, and it definitely like shows. Your, your, those dogs, those photos of them dogs that you're – I mean, it's, it's – I, it takes my breath away. The lines on those dogs, you can see the the health. It, I mean, I, I see the health and the care that you're putting into it. It's obvious when I see these pictures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, I, I see them printing food. The overhead's a little higher. But see, at this level, the dogs that, you, that you, you've seen, their puppies are going to go for around thirty five dollars to $4,000. Okay. So you figure they have ten dogs, you, you can make thirty five thousand, forty thousand dollars. I got a male and two females, and I'm currently kind of doing like a layaway on a uh, a merle colored dog, you know, the spotty patchy ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I, I posted pictures on a, on my Facebook profile. Yeah. Uh, of, the, of the from the breeder, but yeah, I'm I'm getting another girl. I have one male, two females, and I'm getting another girl. And those puppies will go for about five thousand. 
That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. That must give you yeah. such oh, a yeah. good oh, self. Yeah. That must give you such a sense of accomplishment. I mean, the care that you, you know, I get goosebumps if I take care of a cactus plant that my wife buys for me and I water it. <laughs> and it, <laughs> and, oh, and, and here, God. and here you are. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're caring for these dogs and then they're having their litter and then you care for those babies and you raise them up and then yeah. you can hand them off to someone who is going to appreciate the beauty in that animal. Right. And, and you have a hand in that. That must, that must do something. That must do something to you to be involved in that. It does because, you know, my, I, I screen my buyers and my buyers have been predominantly families. Yeah. From uh, the suburbs, you know, really nice uh, environments. You so know, you know these do. dogs are going to uh, a proper home. You know they're going to be taken care of. Yes. I won't, I won't sell dogs to anybody that wants to find them or anything crazy. I've I, I refused sales in the past, and I will not put my dogs in bad situations. I do love my dogs. I love the breed, and, you know, I love my dogs, you yeah. know. And I always feel a connection with them, and, and it carries on after I sell them. And I try and maintain relationships with my buyers because they make great references. Absolutely. Word of mouth, I would imagine, in that business, in the dog breeding business, has a lot uh, to say with your, about your yeah, are, success. Are, are, you on, are you on my light page, my dog breeding page? No, I don't think I am. I'll send you a link to that also. Do, do that. I'll also link that so, to this episode so everyone else can see it as well. Okay, great, great, great. Uh, I'll get that to you. I mean, because that's another thing. You, you know, there's a lot of scammers out there who who may post a, a picture of someone else's dog and say, look, you know, I got this dog looking for a great home, $2,000, you know, and so forth. But, you know, they rip people off, so they give responsible breeders a bad name. Yeah, so how, how do you um, separate yourselves from those scammers? How can people know that you're the real deal? How can they know that your dogs are purebred? You, you know, I post uh, pictures of my dogs throughout their life, multiple photos. Yeah. Every, every photo you send in my profile, I also put it on my like page. Okay. Um, I, I post multiple pictures of every litter. I post pictures with families that I've sold dogs to. Um, I, I asked all of my families that I sold dogs to if they could provide a reference for my dogs. Okay. So I try and, I, you know... I try and, you know, uh, um, you say, like, okay, if you go to my like page, you see a, a background photo. Yeah. And then the family, the family in that picture, um, they're also a reference, but that was one of my hardest sales. Okay. You know, each sale is challenging. You know, because people are afraid. People are cautious about their money. Sure. So I go out of my way to reassure them that their money is well spent. Yeah. And, you know, it shows. Is is there some kind of national registry, um, some sort of national organization yeah. where you can register so that people know that you are the real deal and accredited? How does that work? Right. There's uh, the IOEBA, which is the International Organization of Old English Bulldogs. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, International Organization of Old English Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But anyway, yeah, that's that's the organization. But some. My dogs want to be dual registered. They're going to be registered in uh, multiple groups. Okay. So because they can also be registered in the AKBA, which is a European uh, uh, bulldog association, and um, you know, it, you, you look for patterns. You know, you look for different things. 
Sure, sure. Still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you look you you look for patterns. You look for longevity. Uh, you look for history because I post and you see on my life page. I post pictures of every litter I've had. Okay. So then people can literally follow along with on on a timeline and see, you know, yes. what you're producing. It with provides these, with a timeline of my activities. Uh, you know, and okay. I tell you, it's uh, and we see a lot of this over here in Norway, where uh, my wife and I notice it, especially with Rottweilers. People have Rottweilers over here in Norway, and they look sick. They look almost they, they look deficient. Weird head oh size, God. weird head sizes. The legs are weird. You know, the, the proportions are just off. So I, I get the impression that they don't oh. take their breeding very seriously over here. We see also we also see a lot of German shepherds who are that are just broken down with uh, de- degenerative oh hip diseases and things like that. It's it's pretty sad to oh. see. They don't uh, they just they don't seem to be taking the breeding uh, seriously here. Um, it's hard oh. to find a bulldog, uh, a, a British bulldog, that is going to look even close to the litters that you're having, based on the pictures that I've seen. Really? We just don't see. We just oh don't God. see that quality of dog over here in Norway. We yeah. don't. Oh yeah. Well, you know what? There's a lot of irresponsible uh, breeders, puppy mills, and, and so forth. And yeah. I, you know, I take pride in what I do. Yeah, because you can have it. You, if you get a bad reputation in this business, word travels very fast. Sure, sure. Especially with social media. Sure, yeah. And yeah. before you know it, you're out of business. So, yeah. I, I, I provide excellent customer service and quality. You know, I try and be. I'm trying to be innovative in terms of making customers happy and reassuring them um, that their purchase is is respected, their money is respected, and they can trust me as a breeder. Well, I uh, I definitely will do uh, what I can to support what you're doing. When I post this uh, episode, I'm going to make sure I have a few links and uh, and some good information to put out there. Let people kind of dive right. into that aspect of your life, and maybe uh, maybe they'll yeah. buy a dog from you someday. I mean, that's fine. Or just talk to me or whatever. If any questions yeah. about the breed, they can you know text me or whatever you know. Because yeah. I'm not I'm not a, a pressed salesperson where I have to sell them to a person. I would rather make a person feel comfortable, and if they buy it from me, fine. If they buy it from someone else, fine. Well, that's smart. That's a smart way of looking at it because uh, we're talking about a life here. You know, this is a living, breathing animal, and 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 you want it to go to the right person. Yeah, you want it to go to the right to the right family. Absolutely. Right, right. Because I mean, these dogs live to be ten, twelve years, man. I mean. Yeah. And that's that's a lifetime for these dogs. You know, these yeah. dogs. And you want these dogs to be comfortable. You want the kids to be comfortable. You know, yeah. these dogs are going to a they go to a family, and, and the kids are young. And then by the time you know, got you know, it's not yeah, something yeah. to look forward to. But by the, at the end of their lives, these kids are now adults. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You know, they, they provide companionship. They provide protection. They're, they're kids, they're your family, they're, they're family members. You know. Hey man, like and I so said, I it, the yeah. And like I said, it I'm must sorry, be so satisfying for you to be involved in that process that, that just, it is. Yeah. 
like I said, I get happy if I, I, my wife buys me a plant and says, keep this thing alive. And I feel good about myself when I do that. I'm I'm crazy. I am. Speaking of my wife, she told me, speaking of my wife, she told me to make sure I tell you hello. And, and she's a fan. She, she also gets that feeling from you that you, that you are the good man that you are. You seem, you seem to be the good man that you are. You know what? She reached out to me like a sister from day one, you know. What well, and she and really did, man. And, you know, and that that's and that's I, I respect and admire her for that. Yeah, well, she um she's usually it was pretty unusual that she that she took a liking to you so easily because she and I don't want this to sound bad, but she is somewhat of a reserved person. She doesn't really. You know, she's not that active on social media. She doesn't have a lot of friends, but the friends that she has, the people yeah. that she does let into her circle, it it's it, it it says something because she doesn't do it that often. So, I don't know. Con- well, congratulations, I, I, I guess. Thought, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I appreciate it, man. I mean, it's, you know, when she's down there, like if I post something or ask you a question, she'll she'll answer it for me. Well, yeah, you, you know, know, she'll make sure that I'm fully aware. Yeah, I think what charmed her uh, about you is that you ask genuine questions about Norway. Uh, she is definitely an yeah. advocate for Norway. She's quite uh, quite the Norwegian patriot. Wow. So that you ask her questions oh. and, and you, you you took an interest to Norway. I think that's what did it. Yeah. Yeah. From the heart, you know, from yeah. the heart. Sincere questions, you know. Yeah. Um, and she's always answered my questions. She's always been like a sister, you yeah. know. Yeah. And someone I respect. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and like I said to both of you guys, man, I mean, if we ever move over there, I'm coming to see you, right? Oh, you you, <laughs> you, know? you have a place. I mean, you have a place over here, man. You are always welcome. You're always welcome on my man. podcast. Uh I call you friend, I call I you brother, it. and and oh, uh man, definitely man, and definitely. uh we're going to continue. We're going to continue uh uh getting to know each other. We're going to continue sharing aspects of our life. You and I have so much in common. We touched on most of it here. Um, There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but to be honest, I need to go because I have to go check on my kids. They're doing the homeschooling thing here because of Corona and I haven't checked on them. I'm sure they're up, but I need to check on them, make sure they're they're not playing video games. They better be focusing on their schoolwork. (laughs) (laughs) How old are your kids? How old are they? Our daughter is 15. Our son will be uh, 13 in just a few days. Oh, December seventh. Okay. So they they're uh, at that age. There, yeah. Thank you, thank you. So they're at that age where they are, um, they're kind of proving to my wife and I that we've done the right thing because this is the age where they start uh, to become more independent, and with that yes. independence comes new challenges, and they seem to be handling things pretty well. So. I gotta pat yeah, myself yeah, and, and Snoopy on the back. We're we're good parents. <laughs> so That's a blessing, brother. Yeah, yeah, it is. You guys are doing a great job. Yeah, we and are. With that, I gotta take I gotta take my dogs outside. You know. Yeah, and you so, need some sleep. You know, it's like two in the morning there. <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted, brother. That's almost three. Almost. If, if you uh, if you ever want to do a part two podcast, I do. Let me know. I do for sure. Cover. For sure. And uh, I'd, I'd be more than happy to do that. And I'm going to send you the links to my uh, doctoral study and my uh, like page for my dogs. Yeah, do that. I'll share that with my listeners. Uh, I know they'll be interested. I know they've gotten uh, a little lift in their life from this conversation that I've had with you, Les. So so thank you so much for doing this. God bless you and your listeners. Bless you as well. One love, brother. I'll I'll talk to you soon, okay? Take care of yourself, Les. Okay. Thank you, Andy.